Welcome to the CFOleader.com podcast is where we provide tactical and practical knowledge to the modern CFO. I'm really privileged and excited to have Regan Guth with us today from Diversified Insurance. We're going to be talking about DNO insurance. Welcome, Regan. Thank you. Thanks, Anthony, for having me. Uh, excited to be a part of the CFOleader.com podcast. Uh, heard great things and excited to see uh, you guys continue to have great content and provide real support for today's CFO. This is great. exciting. Yeah, thank you. Why don't you take, uh, Regan, just 30 seconds, talk about you, your experience in the insurance industry and a little bit about diversified insurance, and uh, then we'll dive in. Absolutely. No, I appreciate that. I've been in the insurance industry since uh, 2002, joined a, a large national uh, insurance brokerage where I spent a lot of time working in uh, a practice that specialized in directors and officers liability, professional liability, management liability, uh, coverage lines, also supporting their private equity mergers and acquisitions team uh, and working on coverages specifically surrounding uh, whether it's private company, public company, or private company, public company, DNO insurance, or uh, transactional risk products, uh, insurance products that uh, surround the M&A uh, and, and deal uh, environments. I joined Diversified in 2009. So I've been here uh, 12 years and uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, and, and one of the members of the venture practice here. Diversified Insurance is a, uh, an independently owned uh, insurance brokerage firm, kind of like a boutique firm. Uh, if you, you know, think of a boutique law firm, we're a boutique insurance brokerage firm. All of our, or the majority of our colleagues have large national, international broker experience that uh, are used to working on more of a risk management consultative type basis in working with the insurance products that we represent. Uh, we have a full service benefits brokerage practice as well as the property casualty, surety, and uh, really act a lot of times as an outsourced risk manager for our clients. Uh, and that's helping them from, that they could be um, pre-seed, pre-revenue uh, with a high growth trajectory all the way through to a multi-billion dollar revenue company. Uh, and we have insurance or uh, insureds across a wide gamut, but we really focus on that high growth company, regardless of which stage of evolution they're in. Uh, I would also say that we're the leading broker in the Utah area, Intermountain region, in providing some of the more specific coverages and, and sophisticated coverages like directors and officers liability insurance, cyber liability insurance, professional errors and omissions. Uh, so that bodes well to serving the VCPE. Um, environment or, or community, as well as their portfolio companies. It also works uh, well to serve those companies that are growing very quickly. And our consultative approach helps to make sure that we're staying ahead of some of the, the key risk issues that they might uh, encounter as they grow that, that they may not be thinking about as uh, from a risk or an insurance perspective uh, as they're focused on the growth and maybe product development or revenue generation, whatever it might be. Great. Well, we really appreciate you taking some time and being with us. We're talking about DNO insurance, specifically from the CFO's perspective. And, you know, DNO insurance in general may not be the most glamorous of topics, right? That the CFO may, uh, may in, uh, you know, in front, but uh, insurance it's in general. insurance in general, right? <laughs> but it certainly is very, very important. And that I've done this several times, you know, insurance has been kind of like a checklist type thing for me, right? I come and join a company, I meet with the insurance broker, I'm like, all right, do we have cyber policy? Do we have a DNO, uh, errors and emissions? And I'm just kind of checking the box, um, making sure we have a reasonable amount of coverage, you know, but be, after that, I'm kind of forgetting it and not even really thinking about it again. So as we all know, however, insurance policies can vary widely right in terms of what they cover um you know the amount of coverage and the specific you know fine print terms and conditions on there so uh, I, I guess the first question i want to ask you is what is a good dno policy really look like right in your mind and more specifically as a cfo how could i 
determine or ask my broker or whatnot? How do I determine if I have a good quality DNL policy? That's a great question. You know, and to your earlier point, Anthony, when you start to look at why would we have insurance as a company? You know, traditionally, it, it's like a three-legged stool. You know, the first leg of that stool is it's regulatorily required. So you think about, yeah, I've got work comp, or maybe if I have a vehicle, I have to have auto insurance. Um, so you check that box. Uh, it could be that I have a contract, whether that's a lease or a key customer that's requiring me to have certain insurance coverages. And so it becomes, we'll say, a currency to do business. I have to show proof of insurance in order to get this contract and, and start to operate or generate revenue, whatever it might be. Check that box. At some point, you get to the point where you transition and say, okay, now I really need to look at asset protection and I need to look at how to protect not only the balance sheet of the business, but specific to DNO insurance, how do I also look to protect my personal balance sheet? What that means, and early on in my career, I, I was uh, kind of taught by a mentor that you know, when, you're, when you're speaking to a CFO and we're talking about DNO insurance and we're looking at cost versus dollar limits, whatever it might be, that's the one time where you ask the CFO to, to take off their fiduciary hat and kind of start to think about what also do I need for me personally or my, my fellow directors and officers to cover our personal assets should everything go south. Um, it doesn't have to be everything. It could just be one thing that goes south. With a corporation, there's, there's a corporate veil that protects employees from liability. But when you step into a, a director or an officer or an executive role, you can be personally named in a lawsuit. And the backstop, first and foremost, is the, is the company. In your bylaws, every, every organization has a set of bylaws when they're in their founding documents. And there's traditionally uh, indemnification provisions built in there. So the company will have to indemnify you, but to what extent is the, the company able to do so or even wanting to do so? on their own when you could actually transfer that risk through an insurance policy to directors and officers liability. Then you start to think about, okay, well, how broad of a population am I trying to cover? And do I have maybe even an independent board of directors and you might have some pretty high net worth individuals on that board. They've had tremendous success. They wanna know that they're covered. So those are some of the motivating factors to make sure that you do have a DNO insurance policy in place when the time is right. When you start to think about what does a good policy look like? Uh, a good policy will provide coverage for, if you're a privately held company, uh, both individuals and the entity. When you become a public company, the entity coverage scales back and is limited only to securities related matters. Um, but let's, we'll, we can dive into that a little bit, uh, a little bit further down in, in the conversation. But the, the key would be making sure that you have coverage for the individual plus a dedicated backstop. They call it A-side uh, directors and officers liability, A-side limits. This is, there's, there's kind of three components to a DNO policy uh, and, and they're, they're different insuring agreements. And I don't want to get too technical in here, but mm -hmm. side A is coverage for you as the individual when the company cannot or will not indemnify you. So yes, they have that indemnification agreement, but this might be a situation where they're not allowed to legally or the company doesn't have the funds to, to provide that indemnification. That coverage provides or steps in, the policy steps in to provide coverage on a first dollar basis, no deductible. Let's protect the individuals. A good DNO policy will have a sidecar or a call it a reserve gas tank of an additional one or two million dollars uh, that sits out there. Uh, once if, if all of the other limits of the policy are exhausted, you have that, that backstop for the individuals. 
you go to site B or the, the, the insuring agreement B on a policy, it's still coverage for the individuals, but it wins, it's when the company does provide indemnification. So simply the company pays the deductible, that's what they're out. The insurance company steps in to, to assume the role of providing the protection that the company would provide you. Side C is entity claims, uh, claims against the company. So an easy way to think about that, C, company. That's what we're providing coverage for. On a private company, um, it's, it's a lot broader as far as what, what type of coverage can be brought or, or can be provided for the company when they're, uh, if a lawsuit were just to name the entity and not the individuals. But focusing as a, or selfishly as the CFO, again, taking off that fiduciary hat, you really want to navigate or gravitate more towards that A-side coverage and what that structure looks like. So I don't okay. know if that answers the question. No, no, no. It helps think about it a little bit. That's great. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Number one, my first question is, it seems like the first thing you need to understand is what natural indemnifications agree already in the bylaws. You need to understand that. So if you're like a new CFO joining a company, or maybe you've been with a the company for a little bit, but understanding what those identifications are, maybe they need to be strengthened uh, just inherently in the, in the doc. Um, if someone wanted to evaluate uh, the strength of their indemnification, uh, do you have any thoughts or comments on how, on what to look yeah. for that? Or is that just something you got to talk with your lawyer and just got to beef it up as much as, as much as I guess the board will allow, I suppose. Sure. No, you, you know, there's a reason, for example, a number of companies are incorporated in the state of Delaware. Delaware kind of has, they have their laws and their, their, their legal structure such that their indemnification provisions that are in their bylaws, usually it's, it's a lot of times it's fairly boilerplate, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of provided by the state. Uh, you know, you could look at Utah incorporation documents that, you know, the state will provide you a template. And I think there's, there's some, obviously some variation from there. But that's definitely a question for counsel Got it. Uh, and, okay. and have them look at that and make sure that you're comfortable with it and explain it in a way that you're comfortable with it as well. Okay. And you talked about the DNO policy having these three components that mainly make up it. Is it standard across the board that all DNO, like if, I, if someone is selling me a DNO policy, I can safely assume that all three of those items are covered or is there exist instances where they're just doing more of the company and there is no personal or vice versa? What's, what should we be thinking about that? Yeah, another good question. Generally speaking, you can assume that they're going to have the A, B, C components to the policy. With the exception of, could you theoretically provide a policy that strikes A or C or something like? Yes, mm-hmm. you could. Rare, but um, so it, it does. It doesn't hurt to ask the question, but that would be a very, very rare, uh, more of a manuscripted or, or customized policy in that scenario. With the exception that, oftentimes you will see a standard policy that has A, B, C building blocks built into it. And then you'll have directors that will say, I want just additional side A coverage. And so you could have a side A only policy. That's very common for public company board or for public companies rather. Mm. Um, Oftentimes a board requirement and say um, a vast majority, 66, 75% of companies will carry uh, additional A side coverage. Uh, And it could be as much as one third of their overall program limits, but that's that financial backstop to the individuals. Occasionally, we'll see that on on, uh, individual or or private company uh, policy structures as well, because again, keep in mind with private companies that C coverage can be a little bit broader. You have the, the 
the chance or, or there's, there's the, the, I guess the potential for coverage limits to be eroded by a claim just against the entity. And then you still have these directors out there that, that could have something follow on afterwards that they wouldn't have any limits for other than maybe that limited um, reserve gas tank, if you will. Understood. So, so if someone's presenting me, let's say I'm shopping around and I'm looking at these policies, obviously the, 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 the most obvious item that comes up are the coverage amounts, what's the dollar value, et cetera. Besides just looking at that, is there anything else that I should be aware of within the policy to see, does it contain this or something that may be uh, removed from one policy, but covered in another? Uh, is there something, I guess, from that perspective that I should be aware of and conscious of as CFO? And I'm looking at that, looking at this. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned earlier, Anthony, that not all policies are created equal. Mm-hmm you can relatively safely assume that if you have a general liability policy or an auto policy, workers' compensation, they're gonna be largely apples to apples and they might even have the same underlying foundations to their policy form. That's not the case with directors and officers liability insurance. There has been more normalization over the last, you know, call it decade, decade and a half. But when I first got into the industry, you really had to look at this company used their own language. And this company used their own language and it was, it could be miles apart or how they would address uh, the coverages more so or or more often than not. Now there are going to be some standard standard features that are in there. I would say first, you want to make sure that you're looking at the retentions and how those apply. Mm -hmm. Um, The severability, for example, of individuals, if one, if you have one bad actor in the company, does that individual negate coverage for the rest of the entity or the other directors? Those are some key provisions. Um, non-rescindable language, meaning that policy, other than for non-payment of premium, is if you make that premium payment, they can't revoke coverage um, or, or rescind the policy. A case in point there would be you knowingly make a false representation on the insurance application, uh, or there's financial misstatements, something to, along those lines. You don't want one bad actor, again, revoking coverage under the policy for everyone else. So kind of severability, but also non-rescindability. Those are some things to think about. A good policy might also include like uh, outside directorship liability. Your company asks you to sit on the board of another organization, whether it's a nonprofit, uh, tr- traditionally a nonprofit. Uh, you want to make sure that you're your DNO policy will extend to protect you over in this, this kind of sidecar role, if you will, um, that your company asked you to do, goodwill of the, you know, being a good corporate citizen. Uh, and that nonprofit may not have coverage or may they, they may have inadequate coverage. So you do have a, a backstop there. You also want to make sure that your defense allocation. So if, again, you have multiple parties named in a lawsuit, uh, it could be three executives and the business there may be a case where you might need either separate defense, uh, separate counsel. Uh, we also want to make sure that the you know claims are allocated or the, the claims coverage, those dollars are allocated more towards the individuals. Um, or if there's allegations that are covered and not covered, that regardless, we're still providing a defense for the whole and not trying to parse out on, a, on the legal bills to say, we're only paying 50% of this uh, this bill because only 50% of the, the uh, act or the complaint is covered, if that makes sense. Got it. And I would expect that all these items that you talked about, which is great detail, if you have a competent broker, 
you should be able to take them these questions and they should be able to iterate very clearly in the policy, what it does and what it doesn't. If they can't, that's a big red flag. Yes. I mean, you, you don't, you know, never want to, uh, you know, try and um, say throw competition or peers under the bus or anything along those lines, but um, these are complex documents uh, and, you know, you can try reading through them. It's a great way to solve and cure insomnia. If you ever, if you ever have an issues with, uh, with going to sleep at night, but understanding how the policies are, are written and structured and where to find coverage, because coverage can be given in, in, in an insuring agreement. Coverage can actually be given in an exclusion where they say, we don't cover this, but we will cover X, Y, and Z, right? So they, they give it back there, or it could be in the definitions on how they define certain terms within the policy. Um, like for example, uh, who is an insured? An insured is the insured entity. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's the company. And, the and any wholly owned or controlled subsidiary. Um, it also means any insured person. Well, who's that? That's any past, present, future director, officer, or employee of the organization. So then you, you'd start to go in and look and say, well, okay, I have a contract CFO, for example, uh, or we're using this individual on a 1099 basis to, to be our chief marketing officer. Are they covered under this policy? Well, let's go back and look. In the definition of employee, do we have independent direct or independent contractors uh, covered there? If not, can we get an endorsement to add that in and, and amend that uh, that definition? So things like that that you really want to be uh, in tune to as you as you review or ask some of these questions. Right. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. This has been some great uh, great information. Um, I, I think you know one of my number one rules as a CFO is never assume anything, right? And if you have to assume something, you assume the worst, right? And with insurance, I think it's very easy to assume that you are covered because you have a policy, right? So what I would ask you is if I have DNO and for those of us who have DNO, let's say we have a decent policy, can you give us examples of something or a scenario where you may think you're covered by DNO insurance, but you're actually not because of X, Y, and Z? I want to kind of understand so we can kind of understand the limits and boundaries of what DNO covers and what it does not. When do you enter the realm of, hey, this is outside of the scope? in a normal, I think an average policy? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. So first and foremost, and this also ties back to another question that you'd asked, you know, look at the retentions and the, the, and the deductibles uh, on the policy. They refer to them as retentions because you are responsible for them up front. So you have to meet a certain threshold before coverage kicks in. Um, and defense is built into the limits, the overall limits. So a couple considerations there. Uh, so obviously if, if it's a minor matter, is it going to exceed my retention? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, something to think about. We often will say, if you're going to talk to your attorney about it, either engage us in a conversation with your attorney so that it's privileged, or just maybe have a, a, a sidebar conversation with us to say, should we report this? Because this is, and this is more directly answering the question. Um, if you late report something, if you go down the path of trying to resolve a matter or negotiate a settlement before engaging the insurance company, you could prejudice your position or the insurance company could argue that their position is prejudiced. We, we didn't have the opportunity to negotiate on our own. We didn't have the opportunity to, to, uh, to be a, you know, have a seat at the table because it's our dollars at stake as well. Um, so always think about that, having that conversation early, making sure that you are, if something does come up, just again, maybe disclose it or treat your broker as a, a risk management professional and say, should I be reporting this? Other things that you might think would be covered that, that 
uh, we see oftentimes that, that kind of don't or that, that aren't part of it. If you're going through an M&A transaction, representations and warranties, that's not included under a DNO policy. Uh, hmm. Those uh, those are kind of known matters that you are you know, kind of disclosing and you're you're outlining what the the representations are about the business. Uh, if there's a breach in that, you're you're not going to be covered. At least under a DNO policy, there are separate insurance products for that. Mm-hmm. The other area that I would look at would be um, you know it, well again M and A a sale of a, of a business or even the sale of your business. If there's a majority change in control, your policy actually ceases to provide coverage. Uh, on a go forward basis at the time of closing, you have the opportunity to, to purchase an extended reporting period is what they call it to keep that, that window open to report claims, but it's only going to be for activities that happen pre-closing. So you might actually have to renegotiate a new policy at that point. Uh, very common in, in, in transactions that, that there's a, a tail coverage component consideration. Issues of fraud, uh, issues of uh, claims of, of ill-gotten gains, um, or, or profits that, that weren't, uh, uh, weren't, weren't properly earned. Those can be claimed, or those are items that won't traditionally be covered. The other areas of a DNO policy would be, for example, uh, if employees sue directors or a director and it has a component of, say, employment law violations, employment practices, uh, discrimination, harassment, failure to promote, failure to hire. It could be a, a, a claim of a, a broad um, attitude towards fill in the blank. The reason for those exclusions is because there are better coverages, better policies that, that are specifically suited to cover those issues. So a good DNO policy, especially for a private company, um, is not just directors and officers, it expands it into a broad management liability package that includes coverages like employment practices liability or fiduciary liability for, for the management of a 401k plan that is technically separate legal entity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or even crime and fidelity type coverage. So if you have uh, an, an executive that's accused of embezzling from the firm, um, that's not going to be covered by DNO. It could be a claim against them, but a crime policy is what, what provides the employee dishonesty coverage. Got it. So uh, circling back to your fraud comment, it, there I could easily see potentially a scenario where a you know someone sues the company, uh, assuming that there's fraud, or maybe they perceive that there's fraud, but you know there isn't. I'm assuming that would be covered as long as you're found innocent or whatever, the, or the or the lawsuit gets thrown out or, or whatnot. Is that is that correct? Is that a safe assumption? That's a very good assumption, and and in fact. That kind of takes this from the one, 100 level class to the 200 level class, because that's one of the key points that you would want to look at in your policy to make sure that it includes what we, what we refer to as final adjudication language, especially for claims that are alleging specific conduct. So a lot of times you'll, you'll hear people refer to this as the conduct exclusions. On my conduct exclusions, do I have final adjudication language? Fancy words, what does that all mean? It means that I have coverage through defense until it is finally adjudicated, whether that be a state Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court, it could be binding arbitration, uh, but to the point where I cannot appeal this decision any further and it is determined that I did in fact commit XYZ or, or, or I did have that conduct, right? I did commit that conduct, whatever is being alleged. Um, and you have defense up until that point. Um, Oftentimes, you can be defended up to that point, and if there's a, an opportunity to settle the matter and just make it go away, then 
then insurance companies will, I would say probably six times out of 10, they, they will consider participating in the settlement as they look at the numbers and say, if we carry this defense all the way through, because the insurance policy does have the duty to defend normally, and we can talk about duty to defend versus reimbursement here in a minute, mm-hmm. um, but they do have the ability or the, the responsibility to defend you through that process. So they, they have dollars that are on the hook and they might say the economic decision is let's try and get this settled. And that duty to defend versus reimburse, it seems like it's a big thing because if you do have a big nasty case that's going all that and you're having to pay all this money, I mean, I would assume the duty to defend is what you really would prefer, right? In the policy so that you're not using yeah. your own funds. You know, so that's a philosophical decision and, and every company feels a little bit different about it. Um, and there's pros and cons. With a duty to defend, just as you said, the insurance company is going to step in and they're going to have, they're going to pay the claims after one or pay for the legal bills and any settlement up until the point or once the retention is met. However, duty to defend gives them the right to choose counsel. So if you have your own corporate counsel that you're like, look, this team, they're professionals, they know my business better than anyone else. I want them to represent me. That may not be an option. So at the outset of negotiating coverage terms, that's something to ask your broker. Is this reimbursement or duty to defend? If it's duty to defend, what's the likelihood or the opportunity to get so-and-so uh, added to my policy for, for counsel? Because the insurance company is, is negotiating specific rates, uh, kind of like a think of your, your health insurance and, and whether it's a PPO or whatever. The providers negotiate a lower rate because they know they're going to get specific business. And the health insurers say, I'm going to go to this provider because I know that they're reputable and they're good at what they do. Same concept. On a reimbursement policy, you not always, but typically you have the ability to choose your counsel. Mm. What they're going to tell you though, this is our rate. We won't pay more than $300 an hour for counsel. So as you go to engage your counsel, they're $750 an hour. They're going to split Mm. that bill with you. Mm. Um, But you get to choose your counsel. That's a big thing for some companies. Uh, They might, they might operate in a space where uh, they feel this is an expert in our industry. Um, they understand education regulation, or they might understand, you know, uh, renewable energy issues better than anyone else. So I want to make sure that I have, have the right attorneys involved. Because generally speaking, those insurance companies that provide duty to defend, and they have what they call panel counsel, they'll have three or four firms per geography. So in Utah, pick your insurance company, whatever name, and they usually will have three or four law firms because they need to plan on potential conflicts of interest, but they're also very reputable firms. Uh, if you're in the downtown area and you look at the names that are on the buildings, you're probably, they're probably a panel counsel for one, one insurance company or another. Mm-hmm. Really good professional attorneys that, that know what they're doing. But if you feel you need a specialist, and that's not a hard and fast rule. Occasionally you can get somebody to, uh, at the insurance company to say, we understand what you're saying we would agree to this specialist if they'll agree to these rates or something to that effect. That's rare, but something to think about and have that conversation. Right. I mean, in the short time that we've been chatting, um, you've talked about a numerous different policy uh, items related to DNO, right? <laughs> Whether it's, you know, this, this reimbursement versus right to pay or, or right to defend, excuse me. Um, you talked about this issue of you know, if one executive does something bad, does that, you know, 
eliminate coverage for all the others, a lot of different types of levers that could potentially be pulled. And your experience when working and trying to fine tune your DNO policy, is there is it fairly easy to go to an insurance company? Are they are they willing to address these and change them as you see fit? Or are they a bit more resistant and they're they view their insurance products as more baked products, which they don't like, you know, changing coverage or or messing around. Does that that make sense? That makes perfect sense. You know, first and foremost, it's it's always possible. You know, the, the old adage, you can sure insure anything for the right price. Right? <laughs> um, you know, so there, there may be a willingness to say, we would consider that, but we would provide a supplement or we would consider that, but we're going to need a higher retention um, mm-hmm. because we're not as comfortable with the risk or it increases price, whatever it might be. It is always easier to have those conversations at the outset, at the beginning of the policy negotiations. When the policy is in force, there's less likelihood or less motivation by the insurance company to actually make those those changes. One of the things that we do, and we've worked with, uh, our, our, you know, we have probably our five or six uh, DNO insurers, especially for private companies, but also on the public company side of things, that that we work with on a very regular basis we have a suite of endorsements that we we know these are the weaknesses in your policy these are the strengths in your policy we want to bring everything kind of up to par we want to improve these coverage positions so for example if we were looking at i'll just use and this is not meant to be an endorsement by any means but if we used travelers or chubb or cna there are lists or or or, you know you might see 20 or 30 endorsements on your policy and these are things that we are, are specifically requesting and adding for our customers. And those will change. As, mm-hmm. uh, as case law continues to evolve, there are new ways to think about the application of DNO insurance. And so we might change the wording instead of a comma here, let's remove that comma and, and say and, or change an and versus an or. You know, there, there's different nuances and, and it gets into the legalese. Um, we, we do joke often that, that we're not attorneys, but we play them every day. Uh, so it's, it's not, it's not, uh, um, you know, insurance isn't rocket science, but this is one of those areas where you do want to have somebody that understands not only the policy structure, but has an understanding of what's going on in, in, in case law and, and the the claim scenarios uh, that are happening around us that evolve every day. Okay. That makes sense. Let's talk real quickly about just the pricing. How do I think about, you know, how, how are DNO insurance policies generally priced? And then the follow on to that as we can, uh, as I'm, uh, I'm certain the, uh, the term, the coverage amounts obviously plays in heavily into that as well. So understanding, you know, as I'm going through different phases of my business from a startup to midsize enterprise, and maybe even, you know, heading into public territory, just general, like if I'm looking at my policy, how much coverage should I ex- ideally want? Um, and when, as I'm, as I'm growing in size, how should that coverage amount kind of evolve and how should I think about that? Sure. So outside of, maybe I'll start with publicly traded companies and because that's the one area where you can really uh, dive into uh, maybe pricing, but also what limits and, and kind of benchmarking what that should look like. With publicly traded companies, the largest exposure is securities-related matters. And when there is a securities class action lawsuit, there's a database. It's filed with the, you know, it's filed in the courts. The SEC is tracking that. We know what that information is. We also know what the settlements look like. There's no such thing as a confidential security settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So we can use claims-based data to say this company with this market cap in this industry had this type of claim. And we start to aggregate all of that data. We can't guarantee what, what a settlement might look like or what a claim might look like. But there's some good data to, to provide some guidance to say within the 75th percentile, you should be here on a limit perspective. And this is what the retentions might look like because these are what the claim settlements are. Mm -hmm. So, so you know that you're covered there and maybe you buy a little bit of extra limit just to make sure that you, you are covered for the outlier um, and that you have something left over once the policy is exhausted uh, mm -hmm. or, or the claim is settled rather. So the policy isn't completely exhausted. Right. So that's the ideal. When you get into private company claims scenarios or private company DNO, you don't have that data. You don't have the ability to see that. Um, so you could look at benchmarking based on, and this also goes on into how is this policy underwritten? Your financials, so revenue, assets. Um, they'll also look at what's the, a lot of times, especially early stage, DNO insurers are looking at what's the uh, kind of the runway uh, and your burn rate, how much cash do you have and how much are you burning? Do you have an 18 month runway? Ideally, they would love to see 24 months. Um, and one of the reasons for that is the DNO insurer doesn't want to be the last, the last person standing. Uh, if, if everything else fails and the company has to shut down, no, there's no more funding available, they're still out there with a policy and limits available. Any lawsuits are, are going to probably be drafted to try and uh, uh, be able to access those limits. I would say underwriters would look at it almost like an investor, uh, private or public. Would I want to put money into this company? Uh, because reality, that's what they're doing. They're putting their insurance capital into the company. Um, so I think there's, you know, you look at revenues, assets, financials, how strong are the financials? Do we have a strong track record? Um, we'll also look at the management team uh, and, and how things are structured. Do we have uh, a good set of bylaws, for example, or are we in an industry that, that is easy to understand? Right now, if you are, say, crypto or um, even uh, uh, kind of you know, the uh, internet of things or um, ride sharing, sharing economy type. Those are some areas where there's been some claims, there's been some activity. Underwriters might be a little bit more uh, reluctant to provide coverage. Um, so from a limits perspective, you know, generally speaking, policies start at $1 million. That's, that's usually your base. Um, uh, the, the smallest limit that's offered. Most private companies will, will carry, say, on a maximum five to $10 million, uh, unless there's extenuating circumstances or if you're, say, a, a unicorn um, tech company, for example, a billion plus in, in uh, valuation, you might start looking at higher limits. But uh, uh, you know that, that's always something that's going to be a little bit more uh, there's a little bit of a benchmarking analysis that we can provide. You know, here's a benchmark based on revenue, based on assets, based on employee headcount, maybe based on geography where you're operating industries. Um, and then we can also start to look at, uh, you know, what price points make sense. Right. Because you know, at some point you can price yourself out of the market. A lot easier on the public company side, though. Um, right. That makes sense. Let me, let me ask you just a general question about coverage itself. Uh, and, this, and this happens, this is around like the claim. So if I'm thinking of DNO insurance, let's say for whatever reason, I have a company and I didn't have coverage for the first year of my business, got in touch with a broker, got coverage in my second year. During that second year, someone comes up and tries to sue me. 
um, and it's relating to events in the first year, but the claim is brought forward in the second year when I have my coverage in place. When and how does the coverage of timing, how does that work? Is it based off when the claim is provided or when the event occurred? How does that work? Absolutely. So years ago, 20 years ago or so, they would say uh, you would look at a, um, a policy that would have a retroactive date on it, meaning we're not gonna provide coverage prior to the, for anything that occurred prior to this date. That's largely got, been kind of abandoned and it's more of a, what they would refer to as a prior and pending litigation date. Whenever you buy DNO insurance the, for the first time, and if at any point you increase your limits, say you go from a 1 million to a 2 million to a 3 million, every step, they're gonna, the insurance company is gonna ask you to basically sign a warranty. Um, warrant that you're not aware of anything that could potentially give rise to a claim, that you're not specifically buying the insurance because you're aware of something or you're worried about something, mm. something specific. Um, just in general, like, hey, this is a good business practice. I'm worried that we could get sued. That's okay. But it's like the old adage, once the house is on fire, you can't, you can't go and insure it at that point, right? Um, if there's something that, that is known, and, and this goes back to what should you look for? Look for a definition, of, look at the definition of a claim. Um, any written demand for monetary or non-monetary relief is typically what you'll see. Um, so if you have an email, if you have some sort of inclination that something could be happening, the insurance company is going to probably ask you to, to warrant that. And then they would say, look, we're not going to cover anything that's either ongoing or a lawsuit that happened prior to the date of inception on the policy. So under your scenario, Anthony, if, if it's something you didn't know about, you know, yes, this, this was work that I did a year ago, two years ago. I'm buying a DNO insurance now because it's prudent. And two months, three months, six months after I buy the policy, you actually learn that, hey, something, somebody's got, got a grievance and they're bringing a complaint against you or the company. That should be covered under the policy. Got it. Okay. Keyword talk, should. should be. Yeah, that's right. Should. <laughs> uh, let's talk about startups for a minute and a common scenario that I see with a lot of my you know, finance friends that are heads of finance. It's very common where you have a startup. They don't have a CFO. They'll have a VP of finance or director yep. of finance. Okay. This VP of finance is the de facto head of finance, right? They are issuing reports. If they have a board, they're sending, you know, data to the board and whatnot. However, they're not, they don't have the CFO title and more, moreover, they're not listed as a treasurer or secretary in the corporate documents but they are essentially operating in that role. So from a coverage standpoint, how do you know if you're a head of finance and you're not a CFO, or maybe if you, even if you are a CFO, how do you know for sure that you're covered by the DNO policy? Yeah, that's great. Again, great question. So what I would look at is the definition of an insured person. It could be uh, that they define you know, a director separately from officer, separately from employee, but traditionally, or, or most often, and, and again, this is just general language that they might use, but individuals are covered that are any, again, past. So they were, but they're no longer in that position, current, or even future. So if you buy the policy and then you do hire that CFO, you don't have to go back and report their, you know, schedule their name on the policy. They're mm -hmm. automatically covered. Um, but also uh, employees are oftentimes included in that list because you do have those functional equivalents, if you will. They're making decisions. They're, they're in charge of the finance stack and, and everyone that's, that's, that's reporting uh, or working in that finance team, functionally equivalent to a CFO, they should be covered under the definition of an insured person when it's 
you know, again, any past, present, future uh, director, officer, or employee of the insured organization. Got it. So let's say I'm a VP of finance and I'm, let's say I'm just concerned about that. If I want to get a little bit more or, or sleep better at night, is it, is it a good thing for me to have like, perhaps like a, like a board resolution or something that names who are the officers of the company or who are the executives? Let's say it's a, the insured person is the executives. Just have something formal that's adopted by the company that states that, yes, you are an executive of the company. And that way you have something more documented indicating that, you know, you're not just an employee, but you are officially an executive of this company and ensure that you're covered. Is that? You certainly could do that. And again, that's you know, kind of more of a belts and suspenders approach. Yeah, uh, Definitely wouldn't hurt. The first place I would do, the first thing I would do is just double check the insurance policy to make sure that, that, that it's there. Because, you know, keep in, in mind too, you know, how many of, of these early stage startups are LLCs and not actual, you know, C-Corps. So they're right. not going to have a true board of directors um, or executives you're, or officers rather. You're going to have members who are the owners and you're going to have managers that kind of are equivalent, functional equivalent to officers in that scenario. So mm-hmm. The, the policies have really been uh, broadened uh, to make sure that it's, I don't want to say omnibus, but kind of a, they try to make it a catch-all for who we're intending to cover should be covered. And, oh. and we don't want the legalese to get in the way, but it's always, it never, never hurts to, to have, uh, you know, draft a board resolution or, or you, know, you know, specify something in particular calling out individuals. The only and, challenge with that is that needs to be updated. Right. And you bring up a great point here. You just, you know, you, you assume uh, as we're having this discussion, we're talking about C-Corps primarily, but there are, especially in the startup world, tons of LLCs. They're all over the place, right? So if you do have an LLC and a DNO policy with an LLC, I, I'm assuming that you're, like you said, you're exchanging board of directors for board of members and, uh, you know, executives, maybe managers. Are there any other big differences you need to look out for with the policy? Or is it just nomenclature really that you're, you're yeah, changing I, out? Yeah, it's just really nomenclature. I mean, in fact, DNO insurance policy for like private companies, you might hear it referred to as a management liability policy. Right. They're the same, part and parcel. Um, and it's, it, truth be told, management liability might be a, a more appropriate term, but it, it's all one and the same. Um, a lot of times these policies will even include, you know, advisory boards, uh, you know, extend coverage to advisory boards or, or um, independent, uh, independent council, or I don't say council, but independent boards or, or um, uh, review committees or something to that effect, depending on the industry. Like if you're in the life science space and you, you want to have a panel of experts, you can extend coverage to them through your DNO policy if they were ever named in a lawsuit. Now they can't, they can't go trigger coverage themselves, but if, if somebody says, well, hey, you, you know, we're gonna name you, but we're also gonna name your, your advisory panel, that'll extend the, the defense count or coverage to them as well. Great, uh, well, this is fantastic. Uh, just to, to kind of wrap up one side note, I know you and I had had this discussion of this concept of indemnification letters, right? And mm-hmm. where some, in some circumstances, uh, CFOs or other executives will ask for a specific indemnification letter from the company before you know joining the company or even when they're when they're with it. We did some research on that, and from what I found, the the reason you would get a separate indemnification letter, you know, outside of you know just having great DNO policy, is if you're being brought in or if the company's circumstances have changed to where your personal risk has just increased above 
whatever threshold you indicate, right, personally, that you're not comfortable with. So a good example is maybe, maybe you've been approached for a job uh, for a struggling company, and they want you to come in to help bring the company back from the brink. If you know you're going into some that kind of scenario, obviously you want to have good DNO policy and know all the intricacies and ins and outs, but it may be important to have a side indemnification letter drawn up by official counsel that says, I'm coming in, I'm going to do my best, but this is my employment and my acceptance is no guarantee that this is going to happen or, or whatever. So uh, maybe the company was doing well and then all of a sudden the company is now starting to uh, you know, to not do well, or the company is embarking on a strategy that is more risky from the CFO's perspective, uh, maybe extremely more risky that that's that's outside the the, the risk tolerance. And so, I think in, in those scenarios, as you evaluate, it's just you know deciding: Do I want to have this separate piece outside of the DNO policy to just give me some extra coverage for this whatever this specific scenario? Right. That's that's at least what I found. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really good advice. Um, you know, in thinking, that, you know, especially in a turnaround situation or in a, in a distressed situation, the DNO policy is an asset of the business. Um, so in the event of bankruptcy, the bankruptcy trustee or the courts will look to the DNO policy. And even a court appointed trustee will then at that point be considered an insured under the policy. And that should be in the definitions as well. Um, you know, so you want to make sure that that you do have have that level of protection. You know, look at the DNO policy. If you feel like either the limits are inadequate, or you you think that, you know, this, there's there's a 50 50 chance, or maybe greater than 50 percent chance that this this will end up in a in a restructuring type scenario. Having that side letter is 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 never going to hurt you. You'll you'll be you know happy for that. I, I've heard I heard early on in my career that you uh, you know you can't undervalue uh, the cost of good advice. Um, so if there's something that you're, you're worried about, even if it's just peace of mind, get good advice on it, get good, you know, professional advice. Uh, so I think your, your comments are spot on. Great. Well, Regan, we really appreciate your time on the CFOleader.com podcast. It's been a pleasure. This has been very informative for me and revelatory. I've learned a lot more about DNO than I thought I, I would. And this is great. A lot of stuff that I need to work on personally and uh, investigate. So appreciate your time and thank you for being with us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.